So I thought today I would talk about the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom necessary for liberation. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's also known as the three marks of existence, which is probably more familiar. <clears throat> and I like this idea of having these three aspects because it gives us a new way of looking at our life and the way we experience our life. So the three aspects are Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. But I'm going to start with uh, unsatisfactoriness. Why life sucks. You know? And it's, for me, fascinating because I didn't think that was the case until I became a Buddhist. <laughs> and everybody kept telling me that. And finally I came to understand that they were saying the truth. That I had been so deluded uh, and so happy that I missed my suffering. I couldn't figure it out. So, there are a couple ways that we suffer. We suffer because of change. We get used to things and then they're not there anymore or they are different than they used to be. Uh, we suffer because all things are conditioned and, and made up of other things. Now, this was really hard because, you know, if you study Buddhism, especially early Buddhism, they, 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 they take you right to this place where they say, well, there really isn't an essence, there's no soul, there's no like personality that if you take things apart, you can't find where it all started. And, and that was difficult for me, because I looked at things and only saw one thing. I didn't see a combination of things in a constant state of flux. And then I got this book by Ken Wilber called Spectrum of Consciousness, and that really changed for me the way I looked at the world. I, he was able to break it all down and, and, and show me where it started and why it got so complicated, and then it turned into one. And see, the problem for me is that I wasn't a very good Christian. And I was born Lutheran, and by the time I got to high school, I was an agnostic, and uh, not really know, knowing how to define that, but it felt comfortable because I could say, I'm an agnostic, and nobody really knew what that meant, and so it was impressive, <laughs> you know? And, and what the problem was, it seemed later in my life, was a problem of one, that, that God, or if you're a dyslexic dog, was the ultimate. <clears throat> it was the ultimate. And, and everything else was sort of like, you know, not quite as good as the one, and then we sort of got into postmodernism, and we deconstructed the one to see what it was all made of and found out there really wasn't a one at all. It was just a bunch of different and many things that were connected that gave the illusion of one. Compounded things. So, I didn't start there. I started with, why do I suffer? And then I, in the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the first talk that the Buddha gave, 
He said, I have discovered four universal truths. And the first truth is that life will ultimately be unsatisfactory for you. And the second truth is because you have craving, desire, a thirst that can't be quenched, you're deluded, you're ignorant, and you will suffer. And the third thing I have come to understand is that there is a way to end your suffering. And that way is the Eightfold Path. It leads to nirvana, which is the end of suffering. So I read that, and I'm going, okay, that makes perfect sense. But what is suffering? You know, is it like pain? Is pain suffering? Well, you know, as it turned out, it's not suffering. Pain is not suffering. Suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. Suffering happens when you have certain expectations and they never occur. Suffering happens because we can't see the world the way it really is. And we have hopes and dreams and wishes. We have goals. And rarely, if ever, do they ever turn out to be as good or as significant as we thought they would be. You know, I can remember the first time I went to Disneyland, even as a young lad, I went to Disneyland. And what I noticed most were the people working there. And they didn't look happy in the happiest place on earth. <laughs> you know? They were sweeping and cutting hedges and painting and making it look really good. So we would go there and just be amazed. You know, but I saw the workers and I went, wow. And then I kept, I remember also looking at Santa Claus. And I saw that Santa Claus was wearing a fake beard. And I thought to myself, I've been lied to my whole life. I was 10, but I've been lied to my whole life. You know, and, and those things created suffering for me because now I couldn't trust what the adults were telling me. So the adults had lied to me, but the adults always lie to children. Because they don't want them to grow up too fast. They want them to enjoy the delusion of childhood. You know, ignorance is bliss. And when you get to a certain point and start to wake up, you realize what you've left behind. A really nice place that never existed. (laughs) You know, and so now, so I come to this dharma, and I come to this dukkha, and I come to this thing, and I start to understand that it's the way I perceive things. The suffering I have is due to me, not the object or the situation I find myself in, but the way I experience the object or the situation I find myself in. So that gives me the possibility of getting past suffering. Because if I'm doing it, all i got to do is sort of, as the Buddha would say, wake up to the true nature of reality. And one of those aspects is unsatisfactoriness. Now, in the beginning, I couldn't understand why it was so important to come to the understanding of suffering. Because if you ever talk to a Buddhist teacher, they don't start with nirvana. You know, they start with how terrible your life is. And this is what I can do for you. And they really can't do anything for you. They can just tell you what they've come to understand about what the Buddha said about suffering, which may be good enough. And you can watch them and observe them and see how much or little they suffer. 
and see if what they have to say really works in their own life. And if it doesn't, maybe we don't need to access it and put it in our life. Maybe each one of us are our own best teacher. And maybe each one of us needs to hear things that are applicable to our life. So, responsibility, accountability. Okay, how am I going to end my suffering? Well, they say the first thing we do is five precepts. Okay, we've heard that. It's sort of boring. We try to keep the five precepts. Sometimes it's pretty easy, especially if you just meditate. But once you get off the cushion and go into the world, it can be a little harder to keep those precepts. Because our delusion calls to us. You're living in a city that's based on flash and trash. Here, here we are. And why wouldn't I want to access that? Why wouldn't I want to enjoy all that? People spend their whole life dreaming about being in L.A. Palm trees, always sunny. Rents, way too much. Food, way too much. Traffic, way too much. But we're here, and we have plays, and movies, and clubs, and museums, and all sorts of places to go. Where did I want to go? I said to myself. And now, today, 2016, I don't really want to go anyplace. I sort of hate leaving the compound known as International Buddhist Meditation Center. I sort of hate going beyond the fence, because there it is. On the side of the fence where I live, we have a koi pond, we have trees, we have cats that are sort of chasing butterflies. <laughs> it's, it's sort of nice. I like that. I'm getting used to that. But I can't stay there all the time in the same way we can't stay on the cushion all the time. So rather than changing the outside, I need to change the inside. I need to look at what attachments and aversions I have. I need to be able to see those desires arise and see if they're worthy of satisfying. So if I'm thirsty, that probably is worthy because if I don't quench that thirst, I could go and die. If I'm hungry, that's probably worthy too because I need to eat. So there are certain things, certain desires that are appropriate and actually necessary to sustain our life. But then there are all these other desires. And I find screens create a lot of desire. I have, I have a dumb phone with a small screen that doesn't say much to me at all. But then I have a tablet with an 8-inch screen that talks to me. And then I have a notebook with a 12-inch screen that talks to me and I can respond. And then I have a desktop. I'm one of those guys, 27-inch screen. Whoa, I can just jump in. And all they want me to do is react to what's happening. Buy this, buy that, go to this video, listen to this podcast, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, wow, this is so much fun. I'll never have to leave my room again. I have all these screens to keep me company. But they all create desire. And it doesn't end my suffering, and it doesn't make me happy very long. So, I sit, I practice, 
I watch the mind work. I see and start to understand how tricky that little guy is and how it directs my life in a way that it thinks I should go. Maybe not the way I think I should go, but the way it thinks it should go. Now, this dichotomy took me a long time to create and appreciate. The dichotomy of not having to be who you think you are. That there is a self that has been manufactured and nurtured and has grown over the years, thanks to family, friends, and education. And then we have this other thing that perhaps is the transcendent thing. The quiet place, the observer, the place that doesn't have too many opinions, the place that we can access through our meditation. It becomes a refuge. It's silent. It's peaceful. Really nice place. And we can go there and we can see that we don't always have to be that manufactured manufactured ego or personality. We can be something else. And if that is causing me the suffering, then what I need to do is I need to let go. I need to make it a tool rather than let it be my master. You know, And that takes a whole lot of effort and work because it's been my master my whole life. And it's kept me alive this long. So I can't discount the fact that it has my well-being as its main interest but it eliminates everybody else's well-being, which is not a good thing if you're on a spiritual path. Because the spiritual path, it seems to me, is we start with us and we evolve into the other. That we start to see the connection that we all have. I talked about gratitude last time. And, and I said... Gratitude is what the relative does to honor the ultimate, which I thought was a great soundbite. And Ramdas used to talk about the relative and the ultimate and the dance we do between them. And gratitude is a recognition that all things are interconnected and interdependent. Gratitude is when we come to a place and realize we didn't do it without help that we've always been interconnected and interdependent, and all the success and failure we have had is because of all the situations and people in our life. We are one of the contributing factors. And when you get to that place where you are one of the contributing factors of your life, you start to suffer just a little bit less. You start to see that I have a choice, and I can either have the choice of the monkey mind, or I can have the choice of the silent mind. I can have an educated guess, or I can have an intuitive knowing of what I could do to make it a little better. So suffering is absolutely optional. Pain is not. I'm so happy we have a medical profession and an industry known as the pharmaceutical company. (laughs) That can help us with our pain for a nominal fee. Sometimes it's not very nominal. So between the spiritual guy and the medical doctor, we can get through any situation. Now, it doesn't mean we always come out alive, but we can get through any situation. We can heal in the process 
of wellness, wholeness. So, suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. Then we come to the second thing, this impermanence thing. This has been difficult to accept. Because I have a lot of favorite restaurants in Los Angeles, and most of them are gone now. In the 70s and 80s, they were there. In the 90s and 1000s, they're not there any longer. Where did the heck did they go? And something new took their place, and it never seems as good as the old place to me. And then there's me. And I used to be relatively good-looking. And now this happened. It's called aging. You know? And aging is okay. I still feel young on the inside. I just don't look it anymore. And there are little things that, you know, you get up too fast and you feel like you're on acid, you know? <laughs> it's just, the whole world starts to vibrate, then it settles down, you know? You go, wow. And, and just bending over. I posted something the other day on Facebook. You know, while you're bending over to tie your shoes, you wonder what else you could do while you're down there. You know? Take advantage of the position, you know? So those are all qualities of aging. And then trying to remember things. You know, like names and faces and places. Really challenging sometimes. And you don't want to embarrass yourself by not remembering the name of your brother. You know? So you, you just go, hey, bro, and that's, that's good enough. And then I'm finding something fascinating. Just in the last year or so. And I seem to be getting up at the same time every morning, which turns out to be 3 o'clock. <laughs> 3 o'clock. I just sort of wake up. I go, Whoa. You know? So I, while I'm up, I might as well go to the bathroom. Then I, what's on TV, you know? <laughs> then about 3.30, I go back to sleep again. But it's fascinating because when I go back to sleep, I go into this sort of subconscious state where I start thinking about stuff I haven't thought about for 10, 20, 30 years. And I start thinking about all the things I could have done better or should have done right. And you know what? At 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, they are so real. And you are such a jerk. You know? And, and then finally, finally I drift off into REM sleep and have some really great dreams and wake up in the morning and the sun is shining and life is good and my day will be full and wow, coffee and orange juice to begin. How good is this? But I find my subconscious is becoming more apparent than it has been in the past, that the conscious side of me was sort of dominant. And now there's little tricky places where the subconscious just sort of peeks its head out and go, you're not as good as you think you are. Not a Buddha yet. You've got much work to do. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that happens when you start to die. You know, because your consciousness is there because of brain energy, and it takes a whole lot of energy to keep that consciousness aware and alert and focused. And as you start to die, your body starts to sort of fall apart, and all the energy will be redistributed, and you may not have enough energy to have a conscious thought, but you may have enough energy to have a subconscious thought or become aware of that. And how do you deal with that if you don't have the strength to, to wake up? And look at the sun. 
And I thought to myself, probably the best thing we could do is to meditate. Because sometimes when we meditate, we go into those places, those subconscious places, and see the ghosts that we used to be. And we sort of remember what we used to do, the activity, the habit patterns, the sankaras, if you will. And, and because they never, ever go away, I think we need to make friends with them. You know, Like the uncle that you hate to see he comes knocking at the door. And he always comes. Every year, at the same time, the uncle knocks on the door, and you go, oh, not again. But maybe this time you could say, come in, welcome, and, and befriend that thought, that idea, that situation where you weren't as skillful as you would be today because it's not today when that happened. And then when you make fun, make fun when you make friends with all those neurotic states that we have, then it's just, they're coming to visit you again. Hi, it's been such a long time, good to see you. What's been going on since our last visit? You know, and they'll be happy to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So this impermanence thing also is, it has an advantage. The thing about impermanence, it means we can change. The thing about impermanence, it can become better. The thing about impermanence, we can achieve nirvana. If it always stayed the same, we would never have the opportunity to change enough to achieve our liberation in nirvana. So even though on one side I hate to lose those restaurants, on the other side I'm happy that nirvana is available to me if I change in a specific direction, in a dharma direction, that I can end my suffering forever. So I look at it, impermanence is a blessing and a curse, which is pretty much how I look at everything. Now we come to the hardest one of all, which is we are not who we think we are. And I was so disappointed when I was feeling good about myself that I wasn't who I thought I was. And I was happy when I wasn't feeling good about myself that I didn't have to be that person. But how did I come to be? How did I come to exist in the way I do today? And it seemed I have to blame my parents because they gave birth to me. And and they kept talking to me all the time. And I didn't understand a word they said, but it made them feel good. And I heard these sounds. And then one day, this thing appeared out of nowhere. It's called Mom. I mean, what is this thing? Why is this thing around me all the time? You know? And if I cry, it's there to make me stop crying. If I'm hungry, it's there to make me stop being hungry. But I couldn't focus very well with my new eyes, and I had no concepts in my new brain, and it was just this thing. And there it was. And it kept making these sounds. And then all of a sudden, one day, a hand appeared. It was my hand. Where the hell did that come from? I don't know what a hand is, and I don't even know it belongs to me, but it keeps being there and getting me in trouble sometimes, and other times it makes me feel good. What is this thing? And then the other hand appeared, and then I had feet, you know, and I was just sort of like, wow. And I guess around six or seven months, we start at the beginning of the ego. The self starts to start. And it's, you, there it is. And now I'm, 
I look at mom, but now she's not quite connected to me anymore. There's a sense of separateness that is starting to occur. And it is really scary because before I was included in everything that happened in the universe. And now I'm slowly being excluded from everything that happens in the universe. I'm becoming me. And I can remember me going into my own little bedroom when I was just a little guy and mom was in the other room. And I was so scared because I'm all alone now. And I would cry and then the door would open and mom would come and say, you're going to be okay. And then she'd leave again. And I'd cry myself to sleep. And, and I was getting used slowly to my separateness that needed to be there so I could function in this very complicated world and be independent. And then, and then, and then, we had school. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go to kindergarten. I don't know anybody there. We got people my age and people older, and I don't know anybody's name. And some of them knew my name, and I wondered how the heck they knew my name. And my mom drove me up, took me to the door, and left me. And I went, geez, how am I going to get home? You know? <laughs> I had to go in the building, and I had to start now socializing. You know, I had been potty trained. I was acceptable in a group now. <laughs> and it was okay. And then, you know, then the language thing and the mathematics thing, and I had, you know this like words and concepts and sentences and all this stuff which affected the way I experienced the world because now I was experiencing the world in words. Now I could identify certain things. But every time I identified something, I was separate from it. So I continued to be more separate and more separate as I grew and evolved. And then I went to grade school and then I went to high school and then I left my family and went out into the world by myself because I hated my family. I hated everything they did for me and everything they were going to do for me and everything I was supposed to be and I wasn't. I hated my family. And I came later, years later, to understand that was necessary for me to leave. If I loved my family, I would probably still be there. <laughs> but at 18 I hated my family and I needed to have my own life and my own world and they said see you later call us once in a while and I started building my own individual world you know and now I didn't have mandatory friends like family now I had people that I wanted to be with and some of them wanted to be with me how lucky was I and then they would leave and new ones would take their place and I would evolve and I, now I had to work and I had to conform and be a member of the workforce and I realized there was free time and, and work time and then on the free time it's like laundry and cleaning and, and then you sleep and there's like really never any free time once there's work time. And I thought I would be successful. And I read a lot of books, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Think and Grow Rich, all the important stuff that you need to make a lot of money. And I never made a lot of money, even though I read all those books. And, and I thought to myself, how can I make a lot of money? Well, thankfully, I found Buddhism. 
And Buddhism says you really don't need to make a lot of money to be happy. You just have to suffer less to be happy. And, and money sometimes creates unhappiness because you never have enough money. Wow. And it seems to be true. You look at the richest people in the world, and they still want more. And I was thinking, how much money would I need to have a good rest of my life? And it wouldn't even be a million dollars. It could be less. I could have a little place. I could have a couple cats. I could have a tree. I don't need a lot to be happy now. So I would need millions of dollars. And the millions of dollars, you have to get accountants and tax people. You have to spend it wisely. Or maybe just give it to your family. And then they fight for it. But this idea of being someone, you know, of, of creating yourself and having other people create you, it becomes a prison. And, and I realized I was stuck in the prison of me. And... and and I wanted to get out and see what it felt like to be free. But a lot of people don't want to be free because it's really scary to be free because all those reference points that you've had your whole life are no longer useful. You look at them as just another prison door, another way of looking and identifying as yourself as the prisoner. Now, I don't know if any of you remember this, but back in the 60s, they had a TV show called The Prisoner which was sort of cool. They had this big ball that would roll through things, and I never quite understood what the heck they were talking about. But I liked the idea of the prisoner, you know? So then in 1978, I started to become free because that's when I started to meditate, and that's when I went to the meditation center where I now live, and I started to see, as I sat quietly in meditation, how my mind worked. Sometimes it worked really well, and sometimes it didn't work very well at all. And I continued, and then through ordination, I got a job at IBMC being residential manager and never having to go to the normal traditional workforce again. So at the age of 45, I sort of retired. You know, I said, well, I don't never have to work again. But what I had instead was a lifestyle. You know, lifestyle can be tough. Well, you know, where do you go on vacation if you have a lifestyle that you want to get away from? Because you sort of take your lifestyle with you every place you go. Even if you wear different clothes and get a haircut and buy some new shoes, the lifestyle still is sort of right there, defining you and defining the way you look at the world. So I said to myself, well, you know, at least I don't have to work. But if you don't have to work, you never get time off. You know? Are you excited about the weekend? Well, not so much. <laughs> Because it turns out to be just more of the same, you know. There you go. And, and I suppose that's a good thing, because what you're starting to see is it's, you're free in what you do and not who you are. That doing becomes more important than being. You don't have to be anybody to do stuff. And that allows you to taste freedom, the freedom from being. You know, I think, therefore, I am. Well, I feel, therefore, I do. And what do you feel? You feel the suffering. First, your own suffering, but then you feel the suffering of others. And you keep looking at the world and watching MSNBC and hoping there's less suffering. There's always more suffering. And now it's HD suffering. (laughs) You know, you're right there. 
And the reasons for all the suffering turns out to be desire and craving and delusion and all the stuff the Buddha talked about 2,600 years ago. It's like still happening for us. As humans, we have stopped evolving, it seems to me, if we don't meditate. Meditate ex- meditation accelerates our growth. And that's why it's difficult to find the government encouraging us to meditate. <laughs> they don't want us to meditate. They don't want us to be free. So I don't know if you've ever thought about being an activist, but you can be an activist simply by meditating and saying, I'm not going to be chained to all these concepts, these political concepts. You know, Republican, Democrat, Independent, all the little sound bites, you know, I'd rather go green than mean, all these little things that are happening now. We can just look at them going, yeah, they keep talking about all this stuff. And yet, it's an illusion. They're concepts, they're words. The Buddha talked about a human being being five things, the five aggregates. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. He talked, us, uh, talked about us being nama rupa, name and form. He talked about us as being component things, never one thing. So when the politicians talk to the Americans, I wonder who they are. Who are the Americans? What defines an American? Cultural literacy, driver's license, social security card. What defines us as an American? Is it who we are or what we do? And I'm just stuck. Because the more free I feel that I become, the less I identify with all the things that made me who I was before. So, a guy, an American, a Los Angeles person, a person who drives a Suzuki, one of 12 in Los Angeles. (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, do all those things define me now? How about Buddhist? Whoa. Maybe if I reflect and say, I'm a Buddhist, it allows me to be all the other things as a Buddhist. So I'm a Buddhist American. I'm a Buddhist guy. I'm a Buddhist Suzuki driver. And and maybe that's good because Buddhism is such a big hat to wear. It just covers so many aspects of our life and allows us to have choices as a Buddhist that we wouldn't have as an American or as a guy or as a Suzuki driver. We have many more options as a Buddhist. And all those options lead us in one direction, the direction of less suffering. So being an American doesn't necessarily lead us to less suffering. Being a guy doesn't necessarily lead us to less suffering. We just suffer as an American and we suffer as a guy. But in Buddhism, it is the raft to take us to the other shore, away from all the suffering, in all our different identities and personalities, to take us over to the other shore where suffering doesn't exist. When we get to the other shore, there's no Buddhism. There's no guys. There's no Americans. There is 
total liberation from concepts. Wow. You're free to have them or not. They no longer bind you. They no longer define you. The one thing that continues, it seems to me, is this. When we get to the other shore and we look back, we see everyone is still suffering. We'll always have something to do if we're a Buddhist. And that something to do is to help others reduce their suffering, not by telling them what to do, but by telling them what we do to, to limit, to end our own personal suffering. And let them take it for what it's worth. It can be challenging because all of us have ended our suffering at some level, but still have a ways to go. And, and so do we tell somebody how to go to New York when we've only been to Chicago? <laughs> Will we give them the wrong directions and they'll end up in Memphis? You know? And, and that's a possibility. So we have to be very cautious when we offer advice or suggestions because we're not sure those will lead to the end of suffering. We hope they will. People have told us they will. So sometimes it's good enough just to say to people, well, have you tried the five precepts lately? (laughs) You'll suffer less. And you go, okay, what's the five precepts? Or have you tried meditation lately? You'll find out all about yourself, whether you want to or not. (laughs) So we can be useful as we continue our path, continue our journey, continue our expedition to the other shore. And I'll share with you a prayer that I do every night before I go to sleep. And I know Buddhists really don't pray. There's not much to pray to or for. So it's probably categorized as more of a reflection. So rather than saying, now I lay me down to sleep, what I say now is, not a Buddha yet. (laughs) so having said all of that does anybody have any comments or questions they'd like to uh, ask yes sir in the back yeah I have a question about nirvana right that's a describing aspect of that yeah yeah I want that so much It, well, and it prevents you from getting there. Yeah, right. that's, that's the major roadblock is wanting to be there. Yeah. But I have, to, I have spoken to people, uh, usually in high school classes. I'm speaking again next month at a Catholic high school. And I say to the students, does anybody here want to achieve nirvana? Not one hand goes up. <laughs> and even meditators, not one hand goes up because they got a new car they want to buy or they want to see that latest movie before they get to nirvana. <laughs> So they can enjoy it. So it is an interesting dilemma or paradox. When you say, I want to achieve nirvana, and you realize that simply by saying that and wanting that, you'll never reach it. So when I started meditating, I wanted to do a lot of things. Now I just simply meditate. I don't know if I'll ever achieve nirvana. It's not a big question now, but I do know that things seem to be better. 
I seem to be more sensitive if I meditate on a regular basis. And if meditation happens, or pardon me, if enlightenment happens, fine. If not, well, I've got next lifetime. And then I have the next lifetime. So I have a whole lot of lifetimes and chances to achieve it. And then when you try to define nirvana, it's really hard to make it something that sounds desirable. Because simply uh, stated, nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirths. Now, the end of suffering sounds pretty good. The end of karma is problematic, because what the heck is karma? And the end of all future rebirths makes it sound like we'll no longer exist. So having a strong desire not to exist <laughs> is, is a big issue. And, and so what I have come to understand about nirvana is this, that nirvana is created out of nirvana and not out of birth. So it's a way to exist without being born. Now the problem with everything on planet Earth is it started. And we have been arguing for centuries, if not longer, on why it started and who started it. But because it started, it has to end. Everything that begins has to end. So it seems to me what the Buddha did is he found out a way to exist without having a beginning or an ending. And that would be nirvana. Nirvana is unborn and undying. And I think that's a pretty interesting concept to carry. And maybe there is a parallel nirvana universe where all the arhants are living. And we can't appreciate it or even experience it because everything in our universe was born and has to die. Samsara. So that's how I sort of approach that. Now I simply meditate and have some fanciful thoughts about what nirvana might be, and then I have lunch. (laughs) 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 Thanks for the question. Yeah? Could you tell me what the name of that book is that you you referred to? Uh, The book uh, by Ken Wilber. Is that the one? Spectrum of Consciousness. That That was the first book he ever got published. It was published by the Theosophical Society because nobody else would publish it. And it's available on Kindle now if you're a Kindle guy. I have become a Kindle guy because I live in a room and I have no more room for books. So I, that's my favorite book of his. Even though he says it's a little romantic and he, if he could write it again, he would rewrite it. But every author says that. So, But that's a good one. Thank you. Yeah? So I have a 13-year-old daughter who I can't make heads or tails of, but this is my question. Does somebody have to really come out in the world, like you described your whole journey, you went to school and you became this and, and you, told, you thought you were these things. And like, she doesn't do any of that. She has, since she's five, existed on some other way. Like She doesn't want to compete in things. She does, it. she does a lot just for herself, but she doesn't identify with school or being this or being that. Do you have to go through that whole process and then come around? Or can I just let her let someone be? Like, she just seems to already be there. On the other hand, I think you've got to do these things first. You've got to go to college and think you're this and be a lawyer or whatever and then come around. 
Yeah. And because you're a parent, you can't just let them do what they want to do. They have to abide by your rules and your wisdom. Yeah, which is why I left. You know. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, somebody wiser than I said one time, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And so she's in somebody training, and she's building herself into something. And that, that's good. That's one of the downsides of taking drugs, is it doesn't allow you, if you're younger, to become somebody. It sort of wrecks the building of that. Now, you get to be 30 or 40, and you look back, and you say, well, who am I? And that's when the becoming nobody starts. So it, it seems to me there's an, it's a process, and, and, and sometimes the parents are directing the somebodiness and, and making them a good somebody or as good as somebody as you think they can be. And then they have to take over and make themselves, and then they have to take over from that and sort of deconstruct themselves. And, and then they come out you know, as being somebody and nobody at the same time, which is a really an interesting place to be. Because you can choose to be somebody. If somebody needs help, you can choose to be the person who's helping. And, and, and if somebody just wants to criticize you, you can choose not to be that person who's getting criticized. But simply listen and then walk away. And understand everybody has an opinion and everybody is right. It's true. If, you, if you're looking at a, a six, on one side is a six, on the other side is a nine. And they're both right. So, so it's difficult when you have children. I suppose I've never had children. I have cats, and, <laughs> and they're relatively easy to deal with because they're already cats. You know, they don't have to become a cat. <laughs> so it works out fine for me. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. This is a random question. I've been meditating for four years, and I'm not very good at it. And I keep I feel very attached to getting better at it, but I'm not. But my life overall is a lot better as a result of just doing it. But I can't seem to let go of the attachment to wanting to quiet the mind more and to be more patient with the process of actually sitting. Yeah, that's a good question or statement because the mind that wants to be better is not the mind that's meditating. You see, so, so there's no good meditation. There's no really successful meditators because every time they sit to meditate, it's always the first time. It's, it's not linear at all. It's a present moment experience. And because every present moment is a brand new present moment, that's the first time we've ever meditated in that way in this day. First time. You know, and we can say the same thing about all of us as well. That this is the very first time, whether you're a Buddhist or not, that you have lived this life. And there's no manual, and there's nobody that can tell you how to do it, because nobody has ever lived the life we are living right now. We are unique when it comes to that. And we can do it by intellect, we can do it by intuition, we can have ultimate, we can have relative. And I suppose as a Buddhist, the one sign that would signify we are living our life well is we are suffering less. That would be the criteria for a Buddhist to assess his or her life. How am I suffering? 
Not how well am I doing, but how am I suffering? And, and so when I meditate, it, it's just, you know, it's like I've never done it before. Sometimes I think I have a little streak of two or three days in a row where I'm really good. And then it just goes out the window. You know, and I can't sit still, and my back hurts, my mind is agitated. I'm going, what the hell? 40 years, what does this all mean? <laughs> Gong rings, I get up. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Thanks for the question. Good. Well, we have come to the end of our time together today. Thank you all for keeping me company. And a quick loving kindness meditation for all the people that aren't here today. <laughs>